Ryan Boudreau, Wayne O'Turma, here's Delphi up the inside again. Three wide into turn three. Hang on, Nelly. Here they come off four. Get into the wall. Look out. Delphi is upside down. Snap roll rugby into turn one. comes around with one lap to go. Brian Hoare goes by Berger Blake in turn number one. Scott comes with him. Brian Hoare, who sat on the pole, wins two segments. His dad is going to win the third segment, and he's going to come home the overall champion with a third-place finish in the final segment. Welcome, everybody. Brian Delphia threw his helmet out the roof in that, in that flip. There wasn't much roof left after that. Yeah, right. It's more like throwing it out the sunroof or yeah. the convertible. Yeah, I think he came out himself, came out the top of the cage, too, didn't he? Oh, I don't remember. I didn't. I don't know. He, he barreled out of that thing in a hurry. I know that. And the middle highlight from the 1998 Milk Bowl, done with a purpose, as the YouTube channel is now live for Uncommon Media with the live show from the Milk Bowl, the first video up there. Thanks, everybody, for who have already dropped in and checked it out. Though I will say some discrepancy in the call and what... Was discussed in the show. He said third, yeah, but it was second, right? I don't know. Only history, history knows. Yeah, yeah, he definitely finished second in the segment. It was a great picture in the Burlington Free Press of them coming across the line, and Doug only beat him by a car length. (laughs) Brian, I would have dumped him. (laughs) That isn't. It didn't look like that in the video. Well, it could have been an old a picture from a different part of the day. A, yeah, maybe it was. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, because I feel like he was like half a track or something. But yeah, I'll have well, to go back and rewatch it. I'll send you the link. I don't think I've seen that one actually. I know I was there, but I don't. I don't think I've seen the video. Anyway, but and then the third clip. I was in that race. I remember that one. That was ugly. That was a doozy. Oh boy, yeah. Yep, that was an ugly, ugly crash. And we had those every year. We had one of those 11-car pileups. Every other Cars week. on top of cars. You were one of those cars on top of cars at one point. Yeah, definitely. You got yelled at. It was my last race, yeah. Stern. Oh, oh, no, I know what you're talking about. The one with Jenny Bigelow. Yeah. Maynard now, yeah. Um, yeah, yep. Oh, fantastic times. Yeah. So back 
with a heater for you this week. One yes. we're very excited about, and you'd been working on for quite a while, and I'd say more than 50% of our interviews. We need to thank uh, Chuck's lovely wife for getting the technology in place for us to be able to pull this off, but yeah. was pulled off and super excited for you guys to hear it. Yeah, and thanks to um, Dan St. Pierre, too, a buddy of mine who's from Maine and um, is the world's biggest Dick Lyons fan. Um, and actually, he just made a presentation at the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame to induct Dick Lyons into that Hall of Fame. Anyway, Dan has been friends with the Bounds for a long time, and, and he got me in touch with with Debbie and Chuck a long time ago, and um, it finally happened. I, this one, we chased this for six months, maybe a year. Yeah, give or take. Yeah. But uh, it came together. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great. Uh, I don't know if... I don't know if I ever saw Chuck Bound race in person. Yeah, I probably Um, didn't. I don't think it really overlapped in my time frame. If I did, I was little and I don't remember it. Um, But nobody's ever had a bad word to say about him as a dude. And I can see why after having spoken with him. Just a totally cool guy. And you know how I know when we're going to have a good episode and a lot of people are going to listen? When the Massetti brothers get all excited on our Facebook page. We have to apologize to MJ for we didn't use the picture of him as a seven-year-old kid standing next to Chuck. That's our graphic. (laughs) Back yeah. when you could just load up your kid with alcohol and cigarette and chew sponsorships all over them. Hell yeah. Uh, they've told me, I've, I've, several people have told me that back in the early 80s when Chuck Bound was driving the Skull Bandit car on the NASCAR North Tour, at every single NASCAR North event, they would have one or two representatives from Skull, from U.S. Tobacco, in the grandstands giving out samples of chew and it was hey kid are you 18 no well you look 18 here you go you know and a lot of i've I've, a lot of grown-ups have told me that as kids they remember throwing up tobacco in the grandstands at thunder road or catamount or wherever because no chuck bound drives the skull car i gotta try this and then i know i had uh Quite a few, probably Ricky Craven, Kodiak, Ooh. paraphernalia yeah, as a child. Definitely, yeah, me too. And Budweiser, he went from Kodiak to Budweiser, so we we hit all the bases there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and while we're recording the open and close on Monday night, as has been our custom, but we yep. recorded this almost a week ahead of time, which is just fun. As uh, you got a mini escape with the missus. How was uh, New yeah. York City? Well, all 36 hours of it was fantastic from the time we left on Saturday morning to the time we got home. I guess it was 35 and a half hours, actually. Um, and, you know, 10 or 11 hours of it was driving. So it wasn't much of a vacation, but we had a we had a great time in the city. Uh, went to see a concert at Madison, Madison Square Garden and... It was great. Um, it was our first date 
without a child. And I, I think other than one or two dinners, it was our first time being without Evelyn since before COVID. And when I say one or two dinners, I mean two at the most in that span of three years or whatever it's been. And I enjoyed the sheer reaction I got out of you. And I could just tell by the message you sent me back before you left when I asked if you were going to see a spin doctor show. It wasn't. It was not. I don't know if the spin doctors are still touring. But. You know, I wonder. Uh, I would go see the spin doctors for sure. Why the hell not? But probably not at, like, Madison. Ground. Yeah, probably not Madison Square Garden. No, they'll be, they'll be at higher ground in the smaller room. Right? How dare you? <laughs> I just know, you know, these guys are on their. You know, it's like uh, who was that band that does that eight six seven five three zero nine song? Uh, that's a little that's before only... my time. Well, but you know the song. Yeah. One hit wonders. They play like weddings now. Like that's their. It's the most popular song in the world for like two years, and those guys now play weddings because that's all they can get. So I think the spin doctors are heading down that path. You never know. I just saw like Blink-182 is getting ready for another like world tour. Yeah, and they'll sell out stadiums. I mean, that's a huge deal. So you're saying Blink-182 is above the spin doctors? I, I don't have to like it, but it's the truth. Yeah. Brandy Carlisle, that's who we saw with um, yeah, uh, Brittany Howard from Alabama Shakes. It was a freaking awesome show. It was great. I almost thought you were going to say Randy Newman, but nope. also probably not Madison Square Garden. <laughs> That's correct. Just Madison Square Garden buzzing to short people have no reason to live. Oh, man. We have gone awry. We are off the rails here already. But no, YouTube page is up. You can find yeah. link and everything on all of our social pages. It's can be a little tricky to find just because it's just starting out and there's a few other uncommon media yep. channels that pop up, but you can also search milk bowl live. And I yep. think it pops right up. Yep. Or and I did that. Go to our socials and, and we'll have the there. link on there as well. But yep. with very little shame, put my daughter at the beginning of the video to guilt you into liking, subscribing, hitting that notification bell. So please do so. Don't break a little five-year-old girl's heart by not doing do what that. she asked. You wouldn't do that to a five-year-old girl, would you? You wouldn't. A, a beautiful, innocent child, you wouldn't break her heart, would you? Break her heart, I'll break your neck. Whoa. <laughs> Which... Okay, last <laughs> last tangent here that okay. is completely nothing to do with this. Give it to me. Based off that sentence we just had. We had uh, a young man, a young boy, who occasionally comes over, lives down the road. Just I've heard of this kid. A wanderer, if you will. Yeah. His parents are, yeah, he just goes. He just shows up at the house, and he's playing. And they're playing, and Allie got home. She's like, oh. You should hear what's going on out here. I was inside working on the YouTube video. Like, what? Like, oh, 
he's asking me all about Izzy being his girlfriend. Uh-oh. Like, ha, huh, that's funny. Go out, and she kind of brings it up, and I'm just kind of listening. She's like, you're not going to say anything? I'm like, no. And then he said something about, oh, we've already kissed on the lips, or we're oh, going to. Boy. Oh, no. And I've never wanted to hit a child. <laughs> but. No, 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 no. I did not. Don't do it. Enjoy hearing that. Yeah. And I still said nothing. And I let it go. But I'm less excited about when he rides by. <laughs> but you stood outside that kid's bedroom window that night. I did shaking not. Shaking a fist. Just. Mm. Some six-year-old hitting on my five-year-old. Oh, come on. Come on, kid. She's my girlfriend now. <laughs> mm. She is a girl who could be your friend. But those are two separate words in your sentence. And that is where it ends. Those are not two words that go together to form one word for you, sir. Much like you, the space between you and her, those two words, very separate. Yeah. <laughs> Leave enough room for Jesus, you two. So uh, that was Parent Corner, brought to you by yeah. LaCare's Power Sports. You want to just go into the sponsor plugs? I mean, what the hell? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of a good sex. If you want to run over a six-year-old who's hitting on your five-year-old daughter, get yourself an ATV. See, I thought that in my head, but I did not want to say that out loud. <laughs> at Pol- at the, did- the official Polaris dealer at LaCare's Power Sports in East Montpelier. Or if you're just excited about winter. You want to get yourself a sled. LaCare's Power Sports. I mean, come on, guys. It, you know. If you, need, if you need to have a water skiing accident next summer, go get a pontoon boat from LaCare's Power Sports. Go ahead. Finish the course. Or yeah. <laughs> if your daughter's getting hit on and you're thinking about taking up drinking on the lake. <laughs> Call LaCare Power Sports. Get yourself a pontoon <laughs> boat. I hope you can swim, the young man, because the only place you'll see her is about a mile out. <laughs> Get to paddling. <laughs> oh, But in all seriousness, guys, you've listened to it on, I don't know how many episodes of this show it's come up about the LaCare family and their attention to detail mm-hmm. and the pride they have and the work they put out. And it's no different whether it's a race car, like you said, an ATV, a side-by-side, a sled, you know you're getting the best quality possible. 61 years, I think, is what they said. Yeah, they started in 1961. And I just think I, I, you and I didn't know that. When we, when we started the partnership with, with Jeff and Jarrett. And I thought it was just so cool that it, this happens to be the 61st year and that number being such an iconic part of the family um, in, the, in the racing side of things. Um, just really cool how it worked out. But 61 years tells you that they know what they're doing, right? They're obviously good at this. Yeah, and you can, you go in and, 
you can look on the wall and see all like the Times Argus Business Awards and yeah, all those things speak for themselves. The name kind of speaks for itself, but they have everything you need, all the accessories you need, safety wear, or if you already have a sled, you already have equipment that you need work on. They do great work in the shop. Yep, you got it. Uh, helmets and gloves and boots and jackets and all the stuff you need to go riding this winter. Um, that's the place to go. Um, but like our ad says in the middle of the show, it's not, it's never too early to start thinking about next summer. And they've got the, the pontoon boats, they've got the docks, they've got the ATVs, the side-by-sides, all that stuff. Um, you know, obviously the, the brands speak for themselves, but you're going there for the service and the, the personal connection. Um, and that's, we don't endorse crap. That's what we say on the show. And uh, LaCare's Power Sports is absolutely not that. It is 61 years in, 61 years in business. I mean, that tells you what you got to know. If you're out, maybe doing some winter camping, maybe hunting. Hunting season's coming. Oh, yeah. You're headed out to the deer camp. You need a little power to make sure, you know, you can power up your phone to watch videos while you're not getting deer. That's right. Bushy's generator sales and service. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, or if you need to heat the place up, you know, yeah, get yourself a generator. I, I've thought so many times of, especially since it started, you know, it's October, it's almost November. We're going to be changing the clocks back soon of how many different things I really need a portable generator for like I could use one all the time and Ben had one Ben Bushy had one for sale on Facebook the other day for short money and I'm sure it's gone by now um you know he's he's an expert at this and he'll get you hooked up with what you need whether it's you know just a little portable one like what I'm talking about or if it's something to save your hide in the winter uh, when the power goes out at home and the ice is on the power lines and Green Mountain Power is not coming for three days, you're going to want to stay warm and you're going to want to keep the food in the fridge cold and you're going to want lights on and you're going to want to take hot showers and flush the toilet. Is flush the toilet, for God's sake. Get yourself a home standby generator, a propane generator that will keep your family safe and warm, keep the lights on and keep things rolling in, in the winter. Yeah. Does he get older? As I sound really old, as I heard that sentence come out of my mouth. As you get a little older, like as us, you, get older. you have some kids, and all of a sudden, some of those adventures that you used to somewhat think were fun, like, oh, you remember that time the power went out for three days and we lived off old pizza and, you know, adult beverages? Not as exciting. And you're thinking, oh, I should really be able to keep my kids warm. I should really be able to make them food. Can you imagine how much it sucked for our parents to go through that? Like now that we, I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. I remember some, I remember that huge, huge ice storm we had way back in the day. 98. Just, yeah, it was a long time with no power. Just dumping buckets of water in the back of the toilet to get it to flush. 
No, I mean, think about, think about Irene. That wasn't that long ago. Well, it was actually at this point, it's 11 years ago, but you know, how many people were without power? Thousands, thousands and thousands of people with, they didn't even have roads. Yeah. I was fortunate that we had power. We didn't have an exit to our driveway. Yeah. We were stuck in the house, but at least we had some power. So we were fortunate, but would love to have been prepared with a standalone generator. Yeah. You know, I don't know this, but the timeline matches up. I wonder if that's why Ben got into the the sales business is because of Irene. And I'm just thinking of this right now. We'll have to ask him. Yeah. You'll have to anyway. shoot him a message. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? Speaking of Ben, I think this weekend coming up is lemons at Loudon and he's got the weasel and he's got, I don't remember who, but he's got a quality lineup of drivers um, in that gigantic pink Buick park Avenue, um, which is, this was not a race car when it rolled off the GM assembly line. Let me tell you, but it is now. And uh, yeah, good luck to them down at Loudon. That's my favorite event of the year is lemons. Mm, I love that race. Yeah. Good luck to them. Good luck to anybody who is fortunate enough to get some high-quality flooring from Barry Tile. I was wondering how you were going to tie it in. I love it. Um, yeah. Took a little leap there, but that worked. we got there. It's Monday it night, seamless. folks. Yeah, it was seamless. And it's not just tile, and it's not just flooring. I saw, it was a little bit ago, on their Facebook page, this huge, just gorgeous granite island countertop with like a sink built in yeah it was yeah it was massive it was it was an island that could feed a basketball team with everybody sitting around it without exaggeration too yeah we're not oh i'm looking it up right now 160 by 100 that's in inches that's insane uh no maybe is it it can't yeah it's got it's not centimeters that wouldn't that's that'd be tiny this yeah. is a massive island um i don't know how they got it even in the house without breaking it but uh i'm looking at it and there's a sink and there's cabinets and drawers there's a stove in this thing i mean it's it's a massive centerpiece for a kitchen and um it blows my mind when we when we go on their Facebook page for Barry Tile and Morrison Clark and look at the look at the work that they do. Uh, it's just incredible. Speaking of incredible work, it's time now for Justin to settle in and tell you a story. That's right. It's story time right here on the Uncommon Deeds podcast. The names of Vermonters are seldom found in the record books of the upper echelons of sports. But every now and then, a woodchuck will break through. And in the world of NASCAR, the first Green Mountain boy to find himself hobnobbing with the likes of Richard Petty, David Pearson, Bobby and Donnie Allison, and Tiny Lund was Dorset native Paul Connors. Paul grew up as a racing fan in the early 1950s, watching his uncle George Connors drive at dirt tracks like Pico Raceway in Rutland and the State Line Speedway in Bennington. He often tuned on the cars and ragged on Uncle George that if he put him behind the wheel, he'd make the car go faster. That didn't happen, but when he was 21 years old... Paul Connors built his first race car to run at the state line track for the 1957 season. But the tall, dark, handsome, blue-eyed Paul, having taken a new bride, decided to uproot and head south to Florida. 
Paul left his little race-ready coupe behind, but not his desire to drive. After landing in West Palm Beach with wife Barbara, Paul began racing in the fall of 57 at the Fort Pierce Speedway, located on the eastern coast of Florida, about halfway between Daytona Beach and Miami. He was fairly competitive for a couple of years in an old Ford sedan owned by John Kettle before venturing out to other tracks and in other rides. By 1961 and 62, he was winning a pile of late model features at the Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale Speedways. In November 1963, the Golden Gate Speedway in Tampa, some three and a half hours from home, held a major 100-lap late model race that drew big talent like Buzzy and Wayne Rudiman, Will Cagle, Randy Tissett, Dave McInnes, and Florida superstar Dave Scarborough. Paul Connors qualified on the outside of the front row, missing the pole by just eight thousandths of a second, and he finished a stout sixth in the race, one spot ahead of Will Cagle, who would go on to win some 400 features across the country during his career. Paul started competing more often out west in the Tampa area, and down south in Miami. At the Miami tracks, his regular competition included the Allison brothers, and in 1965, they started going wheel-to-wheel. Bobby Allison won NASCAR's national championship that year, while Paul Connors dominated Palm Beach against the Allisons. The annual Orange Blossom 100, which was held on New Year's weekend, saw Paul out-qualify everybody in the field by three-tenths of a second. That field included the Allisons and the Rudiments, but tire issues ruined the day for both Paul Connors and Bobby Allison, among several others. In 1966, Paul got the call. In all of his short track racing years, he had befriended former Daytona 500 winner Tiny Lund, and the two began hanging out a lot, and they even began driving each other's short track cars on occasion. When the 500 arrived in February of 66, Tiny Lund was busy filming the documentary Hard Charger following his life and his career, and he needed somebody to qualify his Grand National car. It was Paul Connors from Little Dorset, Vermont, who climbed in and put the car in the field through one of the twin qualifying races, and get this, he finished two spots ahead of Mario Andretti. Tiny Lund came back in time for the 500, literally five minutes before the command to start engines, and Paul Connors didn't get to start the race, but he'd done well enough in practice and qualifying that people started to pay attention to him. He managed to strike a deal with a legendary Buck Baker for the World 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway on Memorial Day weekend, but here's the rub. Palm Beach Speedway's point season was held during the winter and spring months when the Florida heat was a little more tolerable. Paul had had a great season going in the late models there. Memorial Day weekend was the season finale at Palm Beach, of course, and Paul was leading Dave Scarborough by just four points for the championship. He had a tough choice to make, try and win the title or take a ride with a former champion on the big stage. Paul chose Charlotte. Time trials were tough on Friday and Saturday, and the dodge that Buck Baker supplied wasn't quite up to snuff, but Paul did manage to finish second in a 20-lap last-chance qualifying race on Saturday to make the field. On Sunday, in his first full-distance race in what you know now today as the NASCAR Cup Series, Paul Connors from Vermont drove a smart race and came home with a sixth-place finish in the 600, outpacing the likes of Wendell Scott, Ned Jarrett, David Pearson, Richard Petty, and his own car owner, Buck Baker. The race was not without its troubles, as Paul's crewman, Dick Byling, suffered minor injuries after being hit on pit road. But in the era of high attrition, only 11 of the 44 starters finished the race, and Paul massaged his car home to sixth place despite being 30 laps behind winner Marvin Panch. He drove the next week for Buck Baker, too, at Dog Track Speedway, a half-mile dirt track in North Carolina, finishing 12th. Grand National Racing was far from a full-time gig, of course, and he still ran his late models all over the place. Paul once recounted that he would race in Columbia, South Carolina on a Thursday, Savannah, Georgia on Friday, Augusta, Georgia on Saturday, and McCrary, Georgia on Sunday. He was also a frequent runner at the Middle Georgia Raceway in Macon and was often a contender for national championship victories running with the likes of Jack Ingram. 
Paul attempted the Permatex 300 sportsman race at Daytona in 1967, but a faulty drive shaft kept him out of the race. He relief drove for Buck Baker that year, once again at the World 600, finishing in 16th. In 1968, he qualified 48th for the Daytona Permatex race, but he ran very well and finished 15th, a nice run. A month later, he began running the new NASCAR Grand Touring Division in a unique AMC Javelin. The GT class was designed to be a support system for the Grand Nationals, and it drew big names like Tiny Lund, Jim Pascal, Pete Hamilton, David Pearson, Bud Moore, Donnie Allison, and many more. Paul ran very well, too. He qualified third at Hickory, North Carolina, and Columbia, South Carolina, fourth at Macon, and ninth at Rockingham, but he registered a DNF in all four races, three of them due to the somewhat typical mechanical failures of the AMC brand. He led laps at Hickory, but crashed out with 29 laps to go. After those four races, the GT deal dried up, and Paul was back into the late model scene once again. He went on an absolute tear in 1969, winning with car owner Hildy Hildebrandt at Palm Beach, Hialeah, Fort Pierce, and Cocoa Beach. He got another shot at Grand Nationals in the Daytona Firecracker 400 in July with car owner Bunny Miller, but a broken valve knocked him out of a potential top 10 finish. He dabbled in Grand National again in 1970 with both Bunny and Hildy as car owners, but nothing great ever happened except for a 24th place run at Darlington in the only race that they qualified for. The 1971 season was all Paul Connors. He ran both the late model and super stock divisions weekly at Palm Beach, winning more than his share of features in both classes and taking the late model track championship. He carried the momentum over in January, kicking off 1972 on New Year's weekend by winning the coveted Orange Blossom 100, defeating Donnie Allison in the process. Things really began to ease down at that point, though. Wins still came over the balance of the 1970s at places like Vero Beach, Hollywood, Golden Gate, and of course, Palm Beach. Paul's final win was in August of 1977 at Golden Gate Speedway in Tampa, Florida. A devastating crash in June of 1979 at Clewiston Speedway left Paul's body shattered with a broken vertebra and internal bleeding. He called it a career then at age 43, realizing that he was lucky to be alive. It would be months before he could walk and regain function in most of his body, and Paul decided he had had enough fun. Paul Connors had been praised in a lengthy newspaper profile in 1974, and again just a few months before the crash, noting his popularity with fans, his kind demeanor and willingness to promote the sport, and his penchant for being particularly helpful to other drivers who were getting started out, or even to cagey veterans like himself. Paul lived out his life in South Florida with his wife, Barbara, whom, as he noted in one of those newspaper articles, went to all but a handful of races over his 23-year career, no matter where they were. Paul Connors was praised both in life and in death by top drivers, promoters, and fans as one of the best stock car drivers to ever run a short track, and the only thing keeping him from being a star, the caliber of Petty, Pearson, or Jarrett, was a shortage of sponsorship. Paul Connors died in November 2021 at the age of 86, survived by his wife Barbara of 65 years, and he is fondly remembered by the racing world. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Storytime, you can email uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. Now, without further ado, let us meet today's guest. There's not a lot of superstar drivers that make their way from the south to the north, but this guy did. He lived up to the hype, and then he went back down south and had one amazing career. And that's after he was out west having an amazing career. This guy has raced everywhere in the country. He's won everything. And uh, it's a pleasure to have on Uncommon Deeds, Chuck Bown. Uh, thanks for joining us, man. Oh, thanks, Jason. Ple- pleasure to be here. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have been one of our most highly requested uh, guests since we started wow. the show for a year and a half. And we finally 
nailed you down and I'm, I'm happy for that. And thanks to your wife, Debbie, and thanks to uh, Dan St. Pierre for, for hooking us up in the beginning as oh. well. Um, so, yeah. Okay. All right. So we usually kick this off kind of the same way every episode. And that's asking you when you remember motorsports coming into your life. Well, to tell you the truth, I kind of grew up in them. Uh, my father was a strong racer on the West Coast. Uh, he started right about the time I was born. So I literally grew up in it and I uh, was down at the shop working on them when I was a kid and getting in the way and stuff and got to start going to races at a very young age. And, uh, you know, I was just a, a big part of it. And when I was 17 years old, uh, he happened to have a second car at the time and we threw a trailer behind the truck that pulled his car and uh, I started my career. <laughs> and you started in Winston West, right? Yeah, I mean those a, are cup cars. Yeah. So, who whose brilliant idea was that to put the kid in a cup car? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, actually, that we had never prepared two cars before, and we everybody was volunteer in those days, and it was hard to. It was just a lot of workload to, when you work a day job and then work on the race cars in the evenings. And we tried to get both cars together, and we were going to go to uh, my first race was Salem, Oregon. We were going to try to go there a couple days before the event let me get a little seat time in a little practice. Well, we weren't ready yet. We're still chasing down parts and trying to get two cars together. So we were going to go early that day on actual race day to let me get a few extra laps in. That didn't happen either. We were one of the last ones to arrive. I, I didn't get any practice. I had to go out to qualify cold. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. All those years watching, it was just way different than I anticipated. It was a 3,900-pound car in those days with tread tires, uh, had a 426 cubic inch Hemi engine. And, you know, it was uh, drum brakes, manual steering, and it was a tank, but you couldn't touch the throttle because the tires would just spin like a streetcar. And uh, it was, I don't know, it was just a handful. And boy, I learned a lot that first race. <laughs> yeah. What was the biggest, like, eye opening cold water down the shirt moment? <laughs> I think just uh, picking that throttle up, trying to get off the corner and go down the straightaway fast for a race. And that's the object. That's what you want to do. And the harder I'd hit the gas, the slower I'd go. <laughs> I'd spin out and everything else. And it was, uh, it was quite an awakening. I did, when I was about 15, I did get a chance to get in his late model sportsman car at the time that actually somebody else owned. And it had a small, uh, uh, small block V8 engine, not nearly as much horsepower and big wide uh, race master tires slicks with a lot of grip. And I hustled it around pretty good. I still spun it out once, I think. But, uh, you know, I could I could control it somewhat. But when I got in that cup car, it was a little different experience. <laughs> I guess so, man. So, I mean, I would think that you're out there with, you know, this is the golden age of Winston West, too, that you're out there and all these veteran drivers are just shaking their head, not at you, but at your old man. <laughs> You know, I, I learned real quick. I think uh, the first season I ran what they called the Northern Tour when I was 17 and started. And it was like the summer months. We were in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, Canada. And I think it was about 10 events all together. And I think I got I scored a third and a, and a second and a fifth by the time that 10 race consummated. So I picked it up pretty quick, but I didn't win one for a long time. That was another story to get first place. But uh, but I was competitive. Uh, after just a handful of races of getting a little bit of the idea of what the heck was going on. Were the other guys welcoming to uh, a first timer young kid? 
I think so. I think I got a lot of compliments from the veterans, uh, Jack McCoy, you know, Ray Elder, uh, you know, Hirsch McGriff, my father-in-law, uh, Jimmy Enslow. There were some great drivers back then. They are hard to beat. And that's why I think it took so long to win a race, but uh, it took about, I think, four or five years before I finally won one. But, uh, uh, but it was, it was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I, like I say, it was, I think it was a good way to start. Yeah. <laughs> Matter yeah. of fact, I think it was the uh, 11th race of my career was an actual cup race at Riverside, California, uh, January, 1972, the Winston Western 500. And there's like a hundred cars showed up to qualify for that. And I'd never been on a road course. And that was a interesting experience too, but, uh, I qualified for the race and I didn't do real well, but, uh, but uh, I actually got to compete in a cup race before I turned 18. I was still 17 years old. And I think to this day, I'm like the sixth youngest on the all-time list because now you have to be 18. So wow. <laughs> I guess that record will, you know, stick around. Even six <laughs> seems, seems like, wow, that's a lot for six people under 17 or whatever. So like you're in algebra class on Friday and you're like, oh, I'm going to go race Richard Petty tomorrow. Like what's everybody thinking? <laughs> That's kind of what it was like. In fact, yeah. A couple of guys of high school friends were actually part of my crew. They went down there with me and did some over the wall duties, changing tires and jacking and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, it was good. Good times really was. What was, how was the perception of racing in high school at that point? It's kind of a popular question we asked guys around here and they often say you know nobody really cared that much and racing didn't make them the cool kid in school but how was it for you in that time period in that part of the country well to tell you the truth i was so wrapped up in it involved in it just as soon as school got out in fact my senior year i i had enough credits that i got to get out at noon and and you know i just boom off to work on the race car or do whatever you know staying busy so i really didn't quite do the social stuff that most high school kids do i kind of missed a lot of that so did we (laughs) we get it (laughs) (laughs) um so you're kind of i mean we're going to breeze through this part uh a little bit but you're kind of learning the ropes and like you said it it took a while for you to win a race but um 76 seemed like a pretty magical year out there for you It, it really was i finally uh I was driving for my father the first few years and, and we were struggling on a pretty good budget. And I finally got an opportunity to drive for a team that was much better funded and uh, boy, it made a difference. So uh, there was two Jack McCoys in those days that raced on the West coast. One of them won some Winston West uh, championships from Stockton or Modesto, California. And the other one was from Portland, Oregon. He was a pretty good late model racer. Well, he was retired then and become my crew chief and he was pretty good. And, and, uh, you know, he turned the wrenches on it and I drove it and, and it was funded by uh, Lakes drywall company. And, and, uh, we had a good year. I'd say so. Uh, you got the championship, you got your first win that year too. Um, yep. that's gotta be, and also, I mean, it was 10 top fives in 13 races, according to to the stats that we found. I mean, that's a, that's a really good season. Yeah, it, it really was like, like I said, I had, I had good stuff and a good team and, I, I got to tell you real quick that I don't know how much time we have, but that very first win I had young children and uh, in those days, women couldn't go in the pits and it, it's just a long day. You get there early in the morning, the race is later in the afternoon and 
when it was all said and done, it was my first first win. I'm in victory lane. I'm signing autographs, and I'm just having a big time shaking hands. And my wife had been up in the grandstand all day with our infant child, and she comes up and says, here, it's your turn. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame her. She'd had a long day. (laughs) Take that, big shot. I get a lot of those handoffs when I get home from work now. (laughs) Yeah, same here. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Can you appreciate that season as it's happening? Or, like you said, you're a new father, whatever, 22, all this is happening. Do you realize it in the moment? to appreciate it probably not you know i mean you're just you're busy you're you're working you're racing you're raising a family and uh, it just seems like time goes by so fast that you really you know until it's all over with you don't really sit back and like wow this is pretty neat (laughs) you know you're trying to get to the point where you can go cup racing at this point too right i mean you're you're thinking about moving east and and really kind of moving up the ladder. Um, you had a good year in '77 as well, and then you you came over well not this way but to this coast. And what went into that move with a family? I, you know, I mean, this is you're a young guy still and trying to make a career and move three thousand miles east. That's that's a lot to handle. It, it was a bit of a risk. Uh, my wife at the time was a, a registered nurse, so she could get work anywhere. And uh, I'm ambitious, I guess. So we just took our chances and uh, we sold our home and backed up everything we owned and moved back there and, and bought a home when we arrived in, uh, in the Charlotte area, a little town called Huntersville, just north of Charlotte, and started looking for rides and going to the races and stuff. And And it was tough. It was, uh, we. I think we Lasted about four years. I got a part-time late model sportsman race with a gentleman named Bobby Wellman out of uh, near Shelby, North Carolina. And we won a couple of races at Hickory and back before the Bush series began, it was called just late model sportsman series then. And uh, I got a ride with a guy named Jim Testa and we had a couple of good uh, races at Daytona, but we were very part-time. I think we ran five or six races all season long. Sponsors were really hard to come by in those days. And, and uh, opportunities were not like they are now. And, and especially when I was from the West Coast, I wasn't a born and raised Southerner at the time, and it was hard to break in. It, it took a while, but, uh, you know, I'd do it all over again. It was a, it was a great run, but, you know, I, I was starving to death and going to call it quits, and then I got saved and got to go up north and race full-time and make a living, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> so you touched on that there, that you're not an insider, in, in the Southeast. So not only is it hard for you to get at work, but you're also way overperforming. I mean, you beat Harry Gann at Hickory. That's about <laughs> as hard a task in Bobby Isaac's car. Like that's as hard a task as there is for a guy in your situation. I mean, how, how was that received? Well, I think quite well. I mean, I really do. It, it's just at the cup level to get something uh, good or, you know, and, and with financial backing with sponsors, it was difficult. I, I, and I mean, all that really changed. I become, uh, I don't know, I think really accepted in the South, but it just, at first it was, it was difficult, you know, as a kid from the West coast and, you know, didn't know anything, I guess. And, you know, that was, uh, it was tough, but like I said, it was, I met a lot of wonderful people right off the bat that, you know, in our neighborhood and invited us to their church and come on and do this and do that. I mean, it was, I think I was, uh, well received. It's just, 
in the racing world, that's a tight little bunch and, uh, as, which is great, but, uh, you know, it was a little bit tough at, at first. So you put in all that hustle, all that work, like you said, four years to become kind of part of that click. How do you end up in New Hampshire? <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, uh, it was largely because of Ken Squire. Uh, he got to know me from the West Coast and from down South and all the stuff he did with radio and television. And uh, he had, you know, he had track up there and he and Tom Curley, you know, had a lot to do with NASCAR North at the time. And uh, he was good friends with the uh, U.S. Tobacco uh, CEO, uh, Lou Bannell. And he talked him into sponsoring a car up there. And Quint Bovere happened to uh, have a, a good car and no driver. And Ken says, are you interested? And I said, well, you know, if I can make a living and, uh, you know, like, worked it out and and uh, we packed up again and moved to New Hampshire not knowing where we were going and found a place when we got up there and, and uh, actually we settled in a little town called Franconia just outside of Littleton but uh, it was a great area up there it was and that was very similar to moving to the south you know at first I was an outsider and I was coming in with this big fancy sponsorship and you know but uh, it was great people up there and it didn't take long at all and I think uh, things went well. New Hampshire is like the Alabama of New England. So it's kind of all the same, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so did you know anything about this region up here in New England? I mean, you replaced Beaver Dragon in Quinn's car. That's a, that's a hell of a pair of shoes to fill up here. Yeah, yeah it was because he won the championship a year or two or, you know, pre- prior and had, you know, heck of a reputation up there. But, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was still, you know, I had a rough start, to tell you the truth. The very first race, I took the leader out. <laughs> I remember that, Catamount Stadium. I, I had bumped with somebody and broke a tie rod, and I was trying to get back to the pits and didn't realize that it wasn't going to turn and uh, pulled out on the track and went to straighten it up, and it just kept turning. I run into Dick Lyons is coming out the fourth turn and, and ruined his day, and, and his mother was very upset with me after the race. She was over trying to, you know, kind of hit me and, and why'd you wreck my son or whatever? I said, I did not mean to do it. I'm so sorry. And then Stub Fadden come over and said, you know, Chuck, there'll be better days. Don't worry about it. It was quite an introduction to my first race in the NASCAR North Series. <clears throat> uh, speaking of introductions, and especially kind of with our audience Tell us a little bit about your first impressions of Thunder Road. Well, I had a hard time there my first time, but uh, you know, I grew to love that track. It was one of my one of my favorites up there. It and Oxford, they're great racetrack where you can really race side by side and go. But but uh, Thunder Road is just so unique in every aspect. Uh, it was a challenge to drive it, but you know, once I figured it out, uh, <clears throat> I had a lot of fun up there, and you know, won a few races and. Um, you know, got good memories at Thunder Road. <clears throat> so we have to talk about the poster, the skull, <laughs> yeah. the skull poster. There's, there's times when a guy <laughs> just can't race. smoke. Yeah, my, your first, my first race. race at Thunder Road. <laughs> God, I mean, high centered. <laughs> that is, uh, that's just such an iconic moment. And it, I mean, it was 40 years ago, and you can't escape it, right? Wow, 40 years ago. I know. <laughs> that is so, that's a cool poster, though. And I still see it occasionally here and there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like the thing that's the first thing that everybody thinks about, at least here in the Thunder Road set, 
um, about when they, when you say Chuck bound, that's, Oh, I got the poster. I got the, so like, <laughs> are you kind of happy that that happened? Well, you know, I guess so. If you look back on it, I mean, it's a pretty unique, uh, you know, you don't win them all. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. And you had a couple, and I don't know exactly what the timeline was, but you had a couple of really bad wrecks. One at Catamount, I think off three and four and <laughs> one at Thunder road where you were end over end, you know, a few times. Yeah. Um, what's that like? Well, it was Catamount. I went side over side side, uh, getting in the third turn. I think it was, uh, I believe I run over somebody's right rear tire with my left front. It just kind of launched me. But the worst of it was that was such a good race car. It broke my heart to, and we, I destroyed it. I mean, it couldn't be repaired. It was, uh, ruined all the roll cage and, Bent the frame all up, and I mean, it just had to be scrapped. When, so we got another one eventually, but uh, it was just a shame that at that point in time, it, it was our best piece and and uh, ruined it. <laughs> How welcoming were the New England heavy hitters when you made that transition up here? I think they were pretty good. I think they understood I was a serious racer, and and uh, and I think I raced them pretty clean. You know, I. Uh, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, the, the Faddens, the, the, the Dragons, the Crouches, the McCabe's. In fact, I see uh, Dick recently uh, married. So congratulations to him and his bride. Uh, he's a good old guy, Dick McCabe. Did having a little bit of that stamp from Ken Squire make that transition easier for you? Probably did. Probably did. And the other unique thing was meeting Tom Curley. Uh, well, we were sad to hear about his passing, but boy, he was one of a kind. He was a quite a guy. <clears throat> so let's, let's hit the gas on Tom Curley here. Um, and it starts with the V6 engine, right? Um, mm-hmm. We've had several guests on this show who have complained still four years later about the V6 and, and you guys uh, bring that in and, Curly uh, wanted that car to succeed so badly um, that in their opinion, you were kind of given carte blanche to do whatever you want. I'm sure that wasn't the case, but um, explain, explain the process of, of how that V6 came into play. Cause it was such a revolutionary idea at the time. Yeah. I think it uh, I'm not sure if it was Tom Curly induced or, or NASCAR induced. Cause well, I think it was Tom Curly that, probably creatively come up with the idea to start with. And that's what the cars were going to all the production cars. So, uh, you know, in that respect, it was a good idea. And right out of the box, the car we had that we raced the V6 in that Quint uh, put together, uh, he actually bought it from a uh, manual Shabakis down in Richmond, built the chassis. And it was kind of an experimental car because it was a whole new concept. And uh, we really had a lot of trouble with the car itself. The engine was fantastic. It had a lot of torque. It, it was lighter on the front axle, so it, the cars would turn better and stuff. So later, when we worked out the, all the problems we had with that chassis, we had steering problems. Uh, it had rack and pinion steering that we weren't familiar with, and it steered like a truck at first and really was a handful. But once we finally worked all the bugs out, it, it was pretty competitive and a lot of fun. And then other people started getting them. Robbie got one, and he had a lot of success with it, and, and everybody started getting them and uh, uh, it was a it was a pretty neat thing, and of course, then they started running them down south too. And I think Jack Ingram kind of got credit for uh, winning the first 
uh, Bush race with the V6, and they call it the first NASCAR race, but really it was uh, Quentin and I with the with the V6, and you know our our first win with it. So that was that was NASCAR also. <laughs> Let's take a break from our podcast and tell you about the people that help us bring this show to you for free every single week. Now, the chances are pretty good that if you're listening to the show, you love to play outdoors. If you're going to be on the trails, on the water, in the dirt, or in the snow, the first place to go is LaCares Power Sports in East Montpelier. LaCares is the area's only authorized Polaris dealer. And they have brand new industry-leading Polaris ATVs, side-by-sides, and snowmobiles in stock and ready for you, plus a great selection of pre-owned equipment. If you're getting ready for winter, there's still a handful of 2023 Polaris sleds available. But don't wait, because they'll go fast. Plus, check out LeCare's full line of parts and accessories, riding gear like helmets, boots, gloves, jackets, and more, or make an appointment with the skilled professionals in their full service and repair department. And by the way, it's not too early to start thinking about next summer with a 2023 Pinecraft pontoon boat, a Mercury outboard motor, a Hewitt dock, or a Polaris Razor sport side-by-side. How about a Polaris Ranger UTV or a Polaris Sportsman ATV? Now you know all about the LeCare family's racing history, and you know they don't settle for anything less than perfection. The same is true about their other passion, LaCare's Power Sports. In fact, they've been at it for 61 years. Check out their virtual showroom, catalog, and services online at lacares.com. Find LaCare's Power Sports on Facebook or give them a call 802-476-8199. LaCare's Power Sports, Route 14 in East Montpelier, Vermont. If you've got a home project going on, your first stop should be Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated. From flooring to kitchens, from bathrooms to outdoor projects, from your home to your business, they are number one in central Vermont. As you've heard on this show, Justin and I are officially middle-aged super dads now. And one of our favorite hobbies is looking at the Barry Tile Facebook page to see their latest projects. I love the carpeting and hardwood flooring, and he loves the kitchen countertops and shower installations. And it's true. Barry Tile has been family owned for 50 years and their experience shows in every single job. It's high quality work by highly qualified people who can design and install everything you need to upgrade your home or office. It's not a big chain store. It's local people with common sense and a ton of skill. Be like us and check out the Barry Tile Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. Or you can give them a call at 802-476-0912. You can also stop into the showroom at 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont, and tell them that the guys from Uncommon Deeds sent you. It's almost here. Winter is coming, and at least one New England snowstorm is going to knock your power out. When that happens and you're in the dark, you'll be wishing that you had called Bushy's Generator Sales and Service. So don't wait. Bushy's has been recognized as the number one dealer of Briggs & Stratton home standby generators in the state of Vermont, and they're also a leading dealer of Kohler generators. From sales and installation to service and maintenance on all makes and models of generators, from 10 kilowatts to 200, Bushy's is the only call you need to make. And hey, racers, you know how important it is to have small portable generators at the track, and Bushy's had you covered there too. After all, they're racers too, and they know what you're looking for. Check out their selection of Briggs & Stratton inverters and have the power where you need it, 
when you need it. Wayne and Ben Bushy have more than a decade's experience in this business, and Bushy's Generator Sales and Service covers all of Vermont, New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Give them a call at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. And now, back to our show. Did you feel like, you know, we're really doing something special up here? That that tour at the time, the NASCAR North Tour, was really, without exaggeration, on par with the Bush Series um, down south. I mean, the races paid just about the same. The rules were slightly different, but the cars were basically the same. Mm-hmm. Huge sponsorship. And your deal, especially with Skoll and U.S. Tobacco, um, it brought a lot of attention to the North. Well, that's good. That was the whole idea of it, I guess, or, you know, but, uh, man, it was a lot of fun up there, just all, all over New England that I'd never seen before and all over Southeast Canada that I'd never seen either. And, uh, it was just such an interesting time. It was a great place to raise kids and live. And I didn't love your winners, but other than that, it was a great place. <clears throat> Didn't uh, didn't get into snow machine racing or anything like that. No, no Quint did that. That's uh, I was going to say. Quint was a big snowmobile yeah, racer. Yeah, that's what they say. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know him in those days, but uh, no, I'm, I don't think I've ever been on a snow machine. Tell you the truth. <laughs> well, it's like standing on the ground, but going a lot faster and being <laughs> a lot colder. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So you, um, you, you guys won a lot of races in the NASCAR North tour and then the split happened, um, you know, in 85 at the end of the year, there was so much controversy with, with, uh, well, Tom Curley and everybody, you know, at first it was him against the Bobby dragon and Mo Brown team. And then, uh, the scoring debacle at Catamount with crouch and LaJoy and lawsuits and scoring debacles and or just yeah. on and on Were you guys kind of like with the deal that you had hitting the panic button a little bit, like what's our next step here? Cause this might go away. Yeah. I mean, you never know. Is the sponsor still going to stay interested? Uh, you know, will the series survive? And, you know, really uh, there was a lot of unknown things there and uh, I hated to see all that happen. I really did. I'm glad I wasn't in the center of any of it, but that's life. I mean, that's business and it happens. And Tom come up with a ACT thing and, and that was a great concept. It just didn't quite fly like he really desired it to. Uh, the idea of those all pro and and uh, the other one out of the Midwest, I forget what it was called, and and NASCAR or uh, ACT conjoining and running some special events or whatever. It just really never got off the ground, but it was a great concept, but it was just complicated because everybody's rules were different and their cars were different and so on and so forth. And so then he tried to switch the cars over to be more like all pro and, and ASA, I guess that was the other one. And uh, so then NASCAR stepped in and started Bush North, which, because all those cars were around and they were becoming obsolete. So it kind of, you know, it wasn't the best situation. It wasn't the best of happenings. And we had to pick either ACT or, or Bush North. And, and we went with NASCAR and Bush North. And, uh, you know, it just uh, seemed like the logical thing for us to do at the time. But, uh, you know, I just hated all that happened. At that period, like you said, everyone's got to choose a side. Are teams talking to other teams? Are you picking the brains of other drivers? Or is it literally just in-house, you guys trying to make the right decision for you? 
I, I think so. I think, you know, it's mostly up to probably more up to quit than, than me and, uh, and U S tobacco. That was, a you know, I mean, they're the ones responsible for paying the bills and making everything happen. So, uh, you know, I just wanted to drive, <laughs> be honest with you, but, uh, you know, I was, I was glad the way it worked out. NASCAR North was, or Bush North was a lot of fun as well. It was a good series. And a lot of the good competitors went there and, and, uh, you know, it was just, it, had a lot of success it had a good future after that and one big success and you mentioned it a little bit earlier that you enjoyed oxford you win the 250 in the crazy open comp race tell us a little bit about that <laughs> it was wild uh you know that they made it a southern point race so all those guys came up and then of course you got the normal uh outlaw cars that compete there too and it was just kind of a a lot of cars show up and a lot of cars attempt to qualify. And at that point in time, we had a really good race car. And our Oxford program was going pretty good. We were getting around there well. And and uh, the only throwback for us or the, the monkey ranch was we had to use the Southern tire, which we weren't familiar with. It was a good year. And we were usually on McCreary's at the time. So uh, we didn't really know what to expect out of that. And we were competitive and fast, but the tires wouldn't go uh, but a hundred laps or so, and they were pretty well, they'd slow down a lot. They'd really get used up. So uh, we thought we would pit early, like the history of the 250 and, and get a free ride to the front when everybody else pits later. And that's what we did. And we got a free ride to the front and we were leading the race. And then, you know, 50 laps later, everybody else comes in and pits, gets new tires and they blow by us. And they go, Oh boy, this isn't going to work. You know? So, and I knew we had a good car. So we decided late in the race to come in under the, another caution and do a second pit stop, which no one did in those days. And, and uh, so now we were at the back, but we had fresh tires and it was, it enabled us to get clear to the front and, uh, and pull off the win. It was a, uh, man, it was a great night. I mean, that's wild. And those races, especially in that year in particular, were so blown wide open with rules and stuff. I mean, you've got, Tommy Houston out there with this cheated up car and you've got some pro stock guys from, I don't know, Seekonk or Lee or whatever. And you've got mm-hmm. Ed Howe from out in Michigan, bringing some wild Camaro over. And, and then you guys have a kind of legal car, you know, like uh, <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't wrap my head around what tech was like in those, in those eras. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, does it even, makes sense to look at another car and be like, Oh, we should do that. Not at Oxford. <laughs> no. Yeah. But you know, a couple of years later, it was a full blown Bush series race in, in 1990, I guess. So yeah, I think everybody was on an even keel then, you know, with, yeah. with, with the Bush rules, but, uh, but that 86 one was pretty wild. <clears throat> yeah, man. In fact, I don't think it got over. It rained out on Sunday night. They run on Monday night. Didn't get over till like, midnight because and it was cold and dreary that night but uh it was a heck of a night the team did a fantastic job and got us out of the pits real good on that second stop to charge up through and, and make it happen man what did that one pay i think it was a little over thirty thousand dollars pretty good big money, <laughs> yeah that's pretty good i'm curious is someone I don't know much about it. Tell us a little bit about Briar Road Course. <laughs> well, I kind of had an advantage on him. I had done quite a bit of road racing in my career prior to that. I don't think any of the 
NASCAR North drivers at that time had. And, uh, you know, it's shifting, uh, downshifting and upshifting and turning left and right. And, and uh, in those days, we didn't have the fancy transmissions that you don't have to use a clutch. You had to use a clutch to make the shift. So I'd learned how to tow and heel early, meaning I'd uh, put my uh, uh, heel on the brake pedal and uh, wrap the throttle with the with the toes as you work the clutch with the left foot. And then you're, you know, your feet are just going all over the place road racing because on a corner where you didn't have to downshift, you could left foot brake, which is what I generally did. I was always a left foot breaker. I just felt that was a, you could miss more accidents that way and, you know, get stopped a little bit quicker. There were some good racers that break, that would work the brake with the right foot, but I wasn't one of them. <laughs> so, uh, oh. but it was just fun. It was a, a great track and, and those guys really looked, figured it out and as time went on because we got to run it a couple of times and and they were getting pretty competitive, uh, you know, at the, the last time we run it, very competitive. It was a lot of fun. It's hard to believe that that place ended up as what it is now, which is New Hampshire Motor Speedway hosting cup races because one of those races is on YouTube and the brush is so high you can hardly see the cars and i mean it was, it was kind of a dump <laughs> to be honest yeah, with you, but, yeah. <laughs> i think it had uh, three racetracks at the time i think there's a half mile there and a yeah. quarter mile a third mile or something it was yeah quite a place <clears throat> yeah uh, that's cool so you kind of did everything you could do up here and um in 89 after running bush north for a couple seasons when that tour had started 89 you went south and I mean, you guys were just gangbusters. Yeah, I was, uh, I was fortunate uh, to get a ride. And when I decided to resign in the 88 season, I, I let him know early to give myself a chance to try to find a ride and give Quint and U.S. Tobacco time to make their decisions and, and do what they needed to do. And, uh, you know, I was, I was, during my time up in New England, I was kind of hoping that uh, i get an opportunity with U.S. Tobacco in the South. But uh, I could tell that was just wasn't going to happen. So, so I resigned and, and, uh, you know, sad leaving, I had a great, great seven years up there, but, uh, in the meantime, the Bush series was taking off cup series was going crazy and, you know, racing was really growing in the South. So I thought, well, before I get too old, give another shot. And so I, uh, got up with the, the Hensleys and we were going to maybe just run part time. We didn't know for sure. Uh, but it turned out we, uh, sealed the Nescafe sponsorship and that was enough to, enable us to go ahead and commit to running the full deal. And the first year we ran awful well, we didn't quite have the success that, you know, we maybe would have, could have, should have, but uh, the next year it all just really come together and we had a phenomenal season. I want to ask about that uh, sponsorship with the, with the 63 car, because that was an iconic race car in the Bush series for a number of years. How do you guys get Nestle as a sponsor? That is, that's a global brand right yeah. yes to, uh, to have that on a on a you know good old boy southern race car that's that's really hard to imagine well we were fortunate in the in the respect that i think originally nestle went to nascar for advice how do we get involved how how do we sponsor a team what do you recommend we do and nascar i think explained a lot of things to them uh, how things work and what happens and then they give them a list of uh three or four teams or whatever. And we were fortunately on that list. They knew we were a legitimate team and, and needed some, some help and some support. So we got a chance along with others to make a, a try to sell ourselves to Nestle. At the time Mark Garrow was with us, he was a, 
going to do the PR work, and he was a big part of uh, helping us seal that deal and and get Nestle because you know it was nip and tuck for a while there. We didn't know who would get it, and it was thrilling to be the ones chosen to to have it. And then it lasted uh, five seasons. It was it was a great uh, great time together. What responsibilities kind of come to you with these big sponsorships? I mean, we found a pretty sweet video earlier this week with a bunch of radio spots you had had for Skull, real 80s sounding. Uh, and then with with the – so what – Real tobacco pleasure without yeah. Up, right? Yeah. What responsibilities trickle to you with those partnerships? Well, you know, they come along with it. I'm basically, you know, representing them. There's contracts and there's agreements and, you know, I'm expected to, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll say, well, I want 15 appearances a year or whatever. But the bottom line is you're pretty much 24-7 representing them. And, you know, you just uh, keep that in mind at, at all times, really. And and I liked it. I was proud to do it. It was an honor, you know, to get to uh it, it was good for me good for my career and, and good for me personally i think so you know i enjoyed that part of it i i really did it was fun did you actually chew tobacco i did for a short time <laughs> the, the poster really was true because at the time i was a smoker i've been quit many years now but at that time i was i was a smoker and, the, and that poster on the wall at thunder road in 1982 said there are times when a guy just can't smoke. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) So, okay. Uh, So along with that sponsorship and a, and a great race car comes huge success. Um, You know, the, that Hensley team was so good with you behind the wheel. And um, 1990 was just an amazing year for you. It was, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you can't dream it up. Uh, and it was just, a uh, really special. I mean, it, uh, I don't know. You just, you don't have many of them in your career. That's for sure. Six wins and the Bush series championship and, you know, polls everywhere too. And you got another Oxford 250, which resonates with us up here, but, um, you, you guys had a stretch of, I don't know, five or six top three, top four finishes and, battling for the win. I don't remember if it was South Boston or one of those races where you're three wide, uh, I think with Robert Presley and maybe Jeff Burton or something, what a show. And it seemed like that was kind of just the norm for that, for that series. And especially for you that year. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, everybody raced pretty clean. Nobody turned anybody or ran into anybody. And, uh, and Orange County was a, a lot like Oxford and Thunder Road. It was a unique round type racetrack, but it was pretty wide and it had a little bit of a progressive banking. So uh, you could you could do a lot of two wide and occasionally three wide. <laughs> that three wide that you're referring to was late in the race on a restart. There was like, I don't know, 10 or 15 laps to go. It was kind of hairy. <laughs> yeah, hairy. Yeah, that's the right word. <laughs> so we fast forward just a little bit. How does the deal with Bobby Allison come to fruition well it was it was quite an honor to get to drive for you know one of the greatest of all time you know really uh, uh you know i just wish we'd had sponsorship uh 
you know, we were on a pretty tight budget for a cup team by cup standards. He had some owners that spent a little money and, and, you know, help, you know, help fund the team, but uh, we never really got the solid sponsorship, but we were pretty fast. And uh, I mean, I was loving it, but uh, it, it just didn't last long enough. I got that record poking on it kind of set me back. <clears throat> yeah, that was a, brutal wreck and i was going to ask about that you brought it up so watch now but oh my god what a hit yeah i was lucky because it would uh you know it obviously it knocked me out they were extracting me with the uh jaws of life and evidently the noise of those trying to separate the roll cage to lift me out uh, woke me up and climbed out my own power a little groggy but uh climbed out my own power and they airlifted me to the lehigh valley hospital and uh kept me overnight but uh you know I was, I was very lucky i didn't have any bleeding or swelling of the brain but uh rung my bell a little bit <laughs> can i ask you what started that wreck because the video it's it's hard to tell it's you and starling marlin and and off you go head on to the wall yeah it was, well it's one of those things where pocono was a tire eater as well and sterling had just been in and got fresh rubber and i was out there on old rubber i hadn't made a pit stop yet and I think he was just way faster and probably didn't realize it getting into the first turn, which is fast turn at the end of that long front straightaway. And he got into the back of me and I got sideways and overcorrected a little bit. And, and when that happened, he got into me a second time. Didn't mean to, I'm sure, but it just turned me driver's side into the wall uh, pretty hard. <laughs> it broke the roll cage. It broke everything. It about broke me, but, uh, thank goodness. Uh, you know, I, it's that, like I say, it kept me out of a car for about nine months with some vision trouble, but, uh, it finally cleared up and I went back to racing, but it set me back. I think, uh, I think a lot of people de- uh, question my abilities after that, but I never did. I, because I didn't come back till I was ready. And I think I was as good as ever, but that's another story. <laughs> After a wreck like that, and you're out for that long period of time, is there any trepidation for you, or maybe more so for your family, for you to get back in that car? You know, uh, we were talking about Brady and his wife's complications of his football playing, whether he retired or didn't retire. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, I never told Chuck not to drive, or you shouldn't drive, or you should quit, or whatever. So. I don't think it was ever really a thought. It was just when I could come back because I, I felt like I was in my prime and I really didn't want to stop then. But, uh, you know, in fact, I actually braced another five years, but boy, it bounced around a lot from a lot of different rides. And, you know, it just seemed like I was the scapegoat. If things weren't going good, the team was struggling or, you know, they weren't great teams. And so then, uh, you know, I'd, I'd get the boot and, uh, you know, I think I just kind of, Went, hurt my reputation some, you know, that, but I was getting it done as far as I was concerned, you know, but for what I had, but uh, that's my opinion, I guess. <laughs> it's, hard it's hard to shake that. A little bit. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to shake that kind of damaged goods yeah. label, for lack of a better yeah. term. Yes, it is. Mm. Um, you had won a pole in that car with Bobby. Yeah. Um, right. And that's that's got to feel like kind of on top of the mountain, right, with with a car that's, you know, honestly in that era, and this is no slight against Bobby Allison, but that car was a 20th place car most of the time in those years. And mm-hmm. to to put that thing on the pole and, and run well with it, you guys really must have been 
Yeah, it was a heck of a lap. It's a track record that stood for several years. But, you know, we were qualifying good every week. I think at Richmond, we were third. At uh, uh, Darlington, we were fourth. And Atlanta, we were ninth. And, you know, I mean, we were we were good qualifying. But uh, the racing, I was still learning a little bit about 500-mile stuff and getting the car the way I needed it, uh, you know, quick enough or long enough because tracks changed so much and stuff, but we were coming around. We had a real good run at Martinsville. We finished seventh, but at that time it had a front stretch and a back stretch pit and I qualified poorly. We had to pit on the back stretch. The one time we qualified poorly <laughs> and uh, boy, we were fast the whole day and passed more cars than anybody, but you know, you had to, you were at the back on every restart and there was every time there's a caution, we come in and get tires. We were, we were at the back because everybody else was on the front stretch and, got a big advantage. They've fixed all that now, but you know, this is 1994. Do you, uh, do you get sort of frustrated with where you are at that point in your career? And meaning you're essentially a cup rookie. Um, not really, but you are, and you know, you're in mid pack equipment that on a great day where you can rip off a top 10, but most of the time we're, you know, midfield and you know that you're better than the car. Um, you know, you're, you won all these races in the Bush series and, and up North and out West and you've got the accolades, but maybe not the money to get the ride or there's no other rides available or whatever. Is that hard for you to swallow that pill, but, but comforting at the same time, knowing that you're in the cup series, <laughs> how, <laughs> how do you, how do you balance that? Yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, you just keep, hoping that uh, people realize what you're up against and, and see the talent and, and better opportunities will come. But, uh, and then it's always a hard call. Would I go back to the Bush series and, and try to get a better car there? Or because to me, the whole thing was, you got to be up front. You got to win races. You got to be competitive. And, you know, I didn't want to just be out there mid packer. I didn't interest me. <laughs> I mean, I did it a lot because I didn't have a choice, but uh, I mean, it just, uh, I didn't want to make a career of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've got some questions before. I, I, I want to ask about your family, but you, for all intents and purposes, kind of wrapped up your career in the truck series and then with another half schedule in the in the Bush series um, with Hensley's. But what was it like driving for Jack Roush in that Exide? I mean, that was just the most gorgeous truck and everybody loved, you know, you think of the truck series back then, it's that, it's that paint scheme. Yeah, it was um, a good truck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was an honor to get to drive for him. Uh, uh, I got to spend a lot of time with Jack. Got to fly in his airplane quite a bit. I even got to ride in his P-51 once and do some loops and spins and, and stuff. But uh, as far as the racing, uh, I was new in the trucks. They're really that, not that much different. But my crew chief was a, a great guy, but he's a road racer. And he just didn't know much about oval track racing and uh, the guys that were better at the chassis, Rutman got those guys, my teammate, and and it was tough. It was a little frustrating because we just couldn't get the thing to do what I wanted it to to do, and uh, so a lot of times I just felt like uh, you know we just weren't quite where we needed to be, even though we had good equipment. But I don't know, it was a little bit frustrating. I mean, we almost won at uh, Phoenix. We got second, and I think we got some thirds, and you know, won a pole at. Uh, Disney, but uh, it was a little bit frustrating. And then to lose that ride was kind of a surprise to me because uh, they 
had, uh, I think it was uh, Greg Biffle come on board. And when they signed Greg, they had a sponsor uh, and they ended up, I think Rutman's sponsor left. Uh, so Exide was still on board, but it wasn't my sponsor. It was Roush's sponsor. So I was kind of odd man out. And so they just dissolved my team. They didn't really fire me. They're still paying me a lot of money and a car to drive and whatever. But uh, I didn't like that. I was a racer and I wanted to race. So I had to get permission to drive other people's race cars, whether it's Bush or Cup or trucks or whatever. And so finally, I just kind of, through frustration and wanting to race, I just made a deal and got out of my contract and to free me up to go find what I could find, which uh, that didn't work out real good either. (laughs) Yeah, it's got to be hard to still have that competitive fire and not have an outlet for it. Mm -hmm. You know, I do my entire career over again in a heartbeat. I loved every bit of it. I do wish it would have ended a little bit better that, I mean, I envy these guys that got to have their final tour season or whatever. You know, that's great. But, uh, you know, it just didn't work out for me. Uh, Be that as it may, you must be overall pretty satisfied with how it went. Very. Been very blessed. Not a lot of people who have won in the Northwest, have won in the Northeast, have won in the South at the level that you – I mean, that's – there's not even a lot of people who have raced in those three regions, let alone had success, right? Yeah, I was counting up a while back of all the different states I've raced in and, and all the different states I've won in. And it's it surprised me. It was, uh, you know, but it, but all the people you meet along the way on the West Coast, in the South, in New England, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know, been a great experience. So your wife, Debbie, is the daughter of Herschel McGriff, who just got yeah. inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Um, that in itself is got to be just the coolest thing. Even if you never sit in a race car, um, that, you know, to, to have that guy in your life, uh, mm-hmm. must be pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It really is incredible. He's, he's quite a guy. He, he 94 years old and he finally got in. He's been on the list the past several years, but he wasn't one of the chosen ones where now he is. And, and uh, he's going to be inducted uh, January 20th. And we're pretty excited about that. But, you know, back when, Debbie and I were dating back when we got married. My father was pretty strong on the West Coast, and so was Herschel. And it was like one of those two was going to win the race. And and it was a little tough for Debbie because they didn't always see eye to eye. But they put their differences down, like when we got married and all that kind of stuff. But so, but there was a there was a time there that they were uh, very competitive with each other. <laughs> it was interesting. And throw your your brother in there too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my brother started uh, the year after I moved uh, south the first time back in, I guess I, I moved in 78 and that was first season he, he raced. I didn't see him race till he came back uh, down south in the, in the 90s. So it was a long time before I actually got to see him race. How much easier is life for you throughout that time period, having a wife who knows the business, loves the business and loves that you're doing it. I think it was a big help. I think she just understood the life, the, you know, racing. And then she got involved with the television quite a bit there for a while. She was chief spotter for, you know, CBS and, and TBS and TNN. And she did a lot with the, uh, and she had some creative ideas for him as well. Uh, so she was a, uh, 
quite respected in that field there for a few years. You did some TV work as well, didn't you? Yes, I did. When I was out with my uh, vision trouble, I I actually did quite a few, I think. Uh, even did a Bush North race once. Uh, but Bush races, truck races, cup races, I, I did quite a few. It was fun. What's that experience like for you as a as a driver, knowing that you obviously you want to be out there, but is it something <laughs> like, hey, I could get used to this? <laughs> yeah, I could. Uh, it's a tough business too. And to tell you the truth, when I was <clears throat> first uh, having kids young and doing and doing all the racing I did, I missed a lot of their birthdays, uh, graduations, even I missed a lot of stuff. And when I did stop my driving career, I kind of didn't really want to be involved with either in you know marketing or, or TV or with a team doing whatever because. You know, thirty years traveled every weekend, and and uh, and I'm kind of glad I did. I went the path I went because I got to see all my grandkids' stuff. Didn't miss a thing, <laughs> and that's been wonderful. Was it difficult when you stepped away? We've talked to a lot of guys, and it varies from I just needed to get completely away from it and disassociate from myself from it because it's all encompassing or it was. And we've had guys who go straight into spotting or crew chief. And, you know, you get guys, we talked to Dave Dion who oddly was almost scared to be around the racetrack. Cause he's worried that no one remembers him, which is crazy in its own right. Yeah. But Dave Dion. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, uh, I uh, I think it was a little bit easier to not be driving, uh, not being at the race. You know what I mean? Just, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, when, I, when I stopped driving, I never really said I'm retiring or I'm done. Uh, my phone just quit ringing. Good opportunities weren't coming. Now, people were still calling, but it was some real junk. And I knew I'd, kill myself trying to take 40th place cars to the to the front and i just didn't want to go down that road so uh you know i didn't accept those if anything good would have called i i'd went in a heartbeat but nothing good came along <laughs> so i'm still waiting <laughs> mm. um i want to ask you a question that that tom likes to ask who's who's the guy that maybe you learned the most from by watching on the racetrack oh boy I don't know. There's been so many along the way. I think I've learned little things from uh, many drivers. Uh, I guess, you know, I mean, my dad's taught me the most or explained things to me and told me, you know, taught me at an early age, at an early age, you win races getting off the corner. <laughs> not getting in, not, you know, to get, get off that corner. And, and that's kind of what I really always tried to do and uh, paid off. Were there any drivers that you kind of helped bring up through the system or, or, you know, you kind of reached out to them and said, Hey kid, you know, don't I, do that. Try this. Uh, you know, back in my day, uh, if somebody asked you, you know, I, I'd tell people things and, uh, like I'd tell Tommy Ellis what springs I was running at Martinsville and he wouldn't believe me because he was a way different driver than I was. He was one that, driving in way deep and just jump all over the brake and 
and I would float it on in there. And so I could run a lot different spring package or whatever than, than a lot of other drivers, you know, driving styles are just, you know, they vary quite a bit. So, uh, and I think that's what helped me on some of them round tracks like Thunder Road and, and Oxford and Orange County and them that, you know, I just kind of roll out of the gas and wouldn't hardly use any brake, you know, whatsoever, but I'd get off that corner pretty good and I'd roll through the middle and get off the corner. Uh, I think, you know, that was, that was a big part of it. So before we wrap it up and we get into our quick hitters, I'm curious when you're up here, New England and Bush North and around, who are some of the guys that you enjoyed kind of hanging out with? Were there guys that you could sit down and have a beer with after the race or? Well, there again, I had a young family and we were usually, you know, it's late at night and we'd back up and head on back to, uh, to home. I really didn't do that a whole lot, but, uh, I enjoyed a lot of them. I enjoyed the, the dragons, uh, Robbie and, uh, McCabe, you know, I enjoyed those guys a lot. Fadden's, uh, you know, it was, uh, even the Levitts, you know, there were some just nice folks up there that I could sit and drink a beer with any of them. <laughs> be fine. Dion would be fine with me. <laughs> as long as it's cold, right? time for our berry tile quick hitters and then we'll uh let you go and thank you again for giving us so much of your time that's my pleasure and fun starting this one off is there one race in your mind that keeps you up a little bit later at night that you wish you could rerun again yeah i've lost a few from making mistakes tom uh I know it was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a bush race at uh, uh, Pulaski. I, f- I think it's got another name, but uh, that's what I'm going to call it. That's what it was at the time. But uh, I was leading the race and kind of going to win it. And it was getting pretty late in the race. And my gosh, I drove it in just a little too hard, slipped up. And Steve Grissom got underneath me and, and took the win. And and you, I remember going up in victory lane and shaking his hand and congratulating him because, you know, I was proud of him take advantage of the boo-boo I made. You know, uh, and it was, uh, but I should have won that race. <laughs> I won another one My when my belts come loose in Indianapolis. That was uh, very, very frustrating. Uh, I could trust my crew chief even more than me, frustrated him. <laughs> but uh, it was an awful way to lose a race. And some guys probably would have not done anything, just left them loose and took their chances. And at the time I was winning a lot of races and wanted to keep winning races. So, I had to stop and hook him up. I thought it was the wise decision, and I ended up finishing fourth. What does but, that feel like when those things come on unhooked? That's a strange feeling. That's the only time it's ever happened to me. That's a very strange feeling. Uh, but uh, Bill Simpson ended up redesigning some of the hardware down there where the belts actually latched because the uh, cuff of my uniform slipped over the the lever as I when I was pulling my shoulder harness tight to get ready to go back to the restart. I grabbed the shoulder harness, pulled it down. Unbeknownst to me, my, my uh, sleeve of the uh, uniform slipped over the, the lever. So then when I let go, I popped the, uh, mm. the lever loose and then everything was loose. All, all five straps were unhooked. And uh, with a restart, with just a few laps to go, leading the race, uh, better stop <laughs> this up. Obviously, it wouldn't let me have my spot back, which I understand that. Yeah. So my question 
I don't know if you've just answered it already, but the question I ask everybody is what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a race car? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Well, that was a dumb thing I did my very first race in NASCAR North at Catamount Stadium was not realizing I had some serious turning problems <laughs> and just staying stopped. <laughs> who, who was it? Uh, Dick Klein's. I think who I ran oh into. <laughs> uh, of all people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. his, mom, his mom wasn't very happy about it. Let me ask you, who is the one guy that you always wanted to finish one spot ahead of? Didn't mean it matter if it was for first or 23rd. You just wanted to make sure you were ahead of that guy. Well, you know, I guess all the different circuits I've run in have had those guys, but uh, I don't know. Robbie was always my entire time up there. He was always one of the ones to beat uh, wherever we went. He was He's good and he's smooth and fast, but uh, McCabe as well. It was always fun to be ahead of him. Dragger Beaver didn't always have a ride in all those years, but some of me did. And uh, and then Bobby Dragon, uh, he was around a lot too, and he was always fast. And then the Joy come along, he was tough. And there were some of them Canadian drivers were pretty good, Claude Leclerc and John Paul Cabana, and you know it was uh, it was just interesting, challenging. I'm curious, what was the relationship? with beaver like being that you took over the car that he was so successful in if he had any problems with it i i never felt him experienced it or i mean he was a great guy he he really was he was i think he's stayed friends with quinn all the time and i don't think that was ever ever a problem whatsoever to my knowledge (laughs) i i believe you beaver's the nicest guy on the planet absolutely Though I have to uh, ask, what did you think, though, when you came and they said, oh, the guy that before you, his name was Beaver Dragon? <laughs> I heard of him. I, it wasn't, you know, I had heard of uh, Harmon Beaver Dragon. I, I knew he was a pretty good racer up there. Yeah. All right, Chuck. Uh, it's been a pleasure for us to talk with you. And, uh, you know, we we really had you circled high on our list for a long time. And I'm glad that we finally got you. And, and again, thanks to Debbie for <laughs> making this happen. I'm glad we got to do it too, Justin Thomas. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. All right, man. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Chuck Bown. Justin, this was a fun one this week one that we had been working on for quite a while and it's weird it it was about an hour which you know is short compared to some of them but i didn't feel like you know we really missed out on anything we had a great conversation and it felt not in a like tedious way but i was like oh we must be super far and then i looked down and we weren't you know super deep but yeah i feel like we got everything we wanted to. That's fair. Absolutely. I mean, it felt in a weird way. It felt like it took two hours. Right. In in, the, in a good way. Like, like I said, yeah, like not we were, in a tedious way. Right. It felt where like you're we 10 minutes in, you're like, God, are we done? Are we at an hour? That wasn't the case. <laughs> but like you heard, we were listening and he'd tell these, you know, great stories. I'm like, man, that story must have been like 10, 15 minutes. And you look down, and you just, oh, it was only like two. But yeah. just the way he was 
you know, painting the picture for us. Yeah. Really enjoyable. And, um, like we said at the open, I, I don't think this is a guy that either one of us ever really got to see race in person. Um, if I did, it was in one of his spot starts in the cup series or something. I, and I don't even know that if, if that's true or not, but, um, always knew the name. And actually here's a fun factoid. Chuck was Chuck bound was born the same day as my father, February 22nd, 1954. And I remember the first time I read that on the back of a card, I was like, okay, now this is, he's going to be one of my drivers. Yeah. Um, so I always enjoyed following him as a kid and, and then realizing all the stuff that he did up here, how cool it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, super gracious for the time he gave us. Once again, thank you to his wife for helping us get the uh, technology portion set up. And we had a little bit of a, there was a little bit of a worry there in the first five, ten seconds of the connection. Or yeah. thought we might have an issue, but man, got through it. No problems. Sounded great. And like I said, very appreciative for his time. And it would have not it would not have happened without Debbie and her assistance because Chuck Bowne was our second Joey Becker type where when it's done, he just got up and walked away. Yeah. Like he can't You ended Debbie's you almost. ended his portion of the Zoom call. <laughs> like Debbie's like, he doesn't know how to turn a computer on, so we, we're gonna have to figure this out. And he was done. He just got up and left. That was it. Thank you. All right then. All right then. <laughs> Make sure you are following us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook, Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. Matt Shepard is the greatest dirt modified driver in history. And you can see him on the Instagram. I don't even know if you can or not. Okay. That dude. That was a bit of a reach. That was a bit of a reach. That's that's fine. But he just won the Eastern States race at Orange County. And by all unofficial calculations, he has topped a half a million dollars in winnings this year. Driving a dirt modified. Heck yeah. Um, That's. That is a shellacking. Uh, 41 wins and 88 starts this year. That is unbelievable. Heck yeah. Yeah. We also are now on the YouTube Uncommon Media. You can find the link on all of our socials. You can search it. Might take a little bit to find at the moment until we get some more views, some more videos up. So you can check it out on any of those spots. If you are interested in being a part of the Uncommon Media family, sponsoring this show, the new Sports Order, which is on every Thursday, comes out every Thursday morning, myself and Sterling Pingree talking football, talking more specifically Cowboys and Patriots, as well as winners and losers from every week of the NFL. Once again, that is every Thursday the new sports order podcast. If you're interested in being a part of it, email uncommon media VT at gmail.com. Gmail. We will be back next week with another episode. We look forward to it. You've been listening to the uncommon deeds podcast, a production of uncommon media.